0: Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaves also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's take it together. Hello and welcome back to the Bread of the Word podcast where we go ad fontes, to the fountain, to the Word of God, to be nourished and sustained by all that God is. As he has revealed himself to us, my name is Tyler and we are continuing along in the book of Job. Beginning chapter 12. We cover in the first 12 verses today, picking up in verse 1. And Job answered and said, right off the bat we know this is going to be a difficult section because we have another lament from Job responding to his friends. And he says, No doubt, but ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you, who knoweth not such things as these. I am as one mocked of his neighbor, who calleth upon God, and he answereth him. The just, upright man is laughed to scorn. He that is ready to slip with his feet is as a lamp despised in the thought of him that is at ease. The tabernacles of robbers prosper, and they that provoke God are secure, into whose hand God bringeth abundantly. But ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. Or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee, Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this? In whose hand is the soul of every living thing, and the breath of all mankind? Doth not the ear try words, and the mouth taste his meat? With the ancient is wisdom, and in length of days understanding. Understanding. So we've got a lot to unpack there, and I read it out of the King James just because as I dug into some of the language, it's it's too nice <laughs> in some of these other translations that they, they try to make it a little more palatable. But it just has a certain bite in the King James, and it doesn't shy away from some of the illustrations that Job uses. The One translation that I, I tend to use is the CSB, but when I get to some of these poetic descriptions in in the, the the Wisdom books, such as Job, Song of Solomon, and the like, it has a tendency to try to interpret the poetry in its translation. Rather than simply stating what it says, it has a tendency to try to explain the poetry rather than just translate it. And so for that reason, I pulled out the King James on this one, just because it it just says what's there. And so starting in verse one, And Job answered and said, You are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. Right off the bat, we have Job responding to Zophar. And Zophar has been very severe with Job. And Zophar is based... His argumentation is entirely rooted in assumptions about Job. We had Eliphaz, who at the very least, roots his concepts in tradition. In traditions concerning the things of God. Speaks very much like the Proverbs do. But then we have Bildad, who Bildad goes to almost word-of-mouth tradition, that so-and-so had this experience. Therefore, this is what you're experiencing. But Zophar just throws that all out the window, and he just basically takes a shotgun and points it to Job blatant accusations that have no founding in what's actually going on. Zophar's problem is his claims are entirely detached from reality. Does that sound like wisdom? We're talking about the wisdom books. It's an entire entire genre of the Old Testament. We call it Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, we call these the wisdom books because a pinnacle part of Hebrew poetry is wisdom. What it means to be wise or to not be wise. And Job says here that their wisdom shall die with them. And they are the fools to whom they are accusing Job of being. Why? Because verse 3, I have an understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who knoweth not such things as these? Who doesn't know these things, he says. Because he's been told to incline his heart to God. He's been told to put away wickedness in the tent. And he's basically saying, Duh! These things are obvious. This is not helpful. Because Job has made a practice of putting away sin within the camp. That's why we're told in chapter 1 that Job is blameless. He's not inhabiting sin. He's not living in blatant, unrepentant sin. But then we get to verse 4, and we take a bit of a turn. That's almost humorous up to this point with his correction. But then we get into the actual lament, and it goes beyond his friends. And his direct, his. Gaze is directed elsewhere in his lament. And he says, I am as one mocked of his neighbor, who calleth upon God, and he answereth him. The just upright man is laughed to scorn. Ew. That is very reminiscent of some of the unpleasant psalms. That is reminiscent of, say the psalms that David writes when he is hiding from Saul. If we want to turn to the beginning of the book of Psalms for a moment. Psalm chapter 3 says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me many there be which say of my soul there is no help for him in God. And throughout some of the other psalms we have language where the writer laments the fact that wicked people look at the psalmist's case and declare that God is all the help he will get. That if he's so righteous, let God save him. Um, he mocks them. <clears throat> so when Job says, "I am as one mocked of his neighbor," one who calls upon God, that the upright man is laughed to scorn, that is the. That is where his head is at. That, I am mocked, for the sake of God. That by relying on God, I am made a laughing stock. Verse five: He that is ready to slip with his feet, is as a lamp despised in the thought of him that is at ease. He that is ready to slip with his feet. Um, that phrase gets borrowed by Deuteronomy in chapter thirty-two when when God says, vengeance is mine. It says, their foot shall slip in due time. Their foot shall slide in due time, depending on what translation you read it from. But the, the sentiment there is that vengeance belongs to God. That final judgment for wickedness belongs to God. And the assumption being that the wicked will not prosper permanently. That when the wicked do pull ahead, it will not be a permanent reality but that their foot shall slip in due time that they will get what's coming to them so he that is ready to slip with his feet he that is going to slip in due time is as a lamp despised in the thought of him that is at ease that just as the one who lays back is not mindful of a lamp of maintaining the oil in that. He's not diligently making sure the lamp will stay lit. So the one that is wicked despises the sliding. Verse 6, The tabernacles of robbers prosper, and they that provoke God are secure, and to whose hand God bringeth Abundance. That is, I think, the centerpiece of Job's lament here. That the wicked prosper. That the righteous are punished, are struck down by the hand of God, as with Job. And the wicked are rewarded, it seems, for their wickedness. And that is a sentiment that is not unique to Job. Because us in in the modern age, we can see a number of examples of that playing out in our world today. I don't even have to give a list because I'm sure there are already people and examples that come to mind when I say that. There are places where the wicked prosper. This is, this is not new <clears throat> to us. This is something that we see in Job. This is something that... Um, Solomon comments on in Ecclesiastes when he says, I saw the wicked in a high and lofty place. I saw the tears of the oppressed and there was none to comfort them. And the, the question of Job is, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? Why is it that the tabernacles of robbers, that the dwelling places of the unjust prosper and advance? Why does God keep them secure? That's a very valid question. That's something that Scripture doesn't shy away from. We see this in Ecclesiastes. We see <clears> this <throat> through much of the Book of Kings. We see all of these wicked kings come forward who their hearts go astray. So much so that when the writer of the Book of Kings introduces a new king to the, to the story, we almost are certain how this is going to end on those first couple lines, because the writer starts off with, this one feared God, or this one did not regard God. Right off the bat, we're told whether their hearts were after the things of God, where their hearts were cold to God some of the most heartbreaking lines that we see in the Old Testament can be found in places like Kings like if we look at the very end of 1 Kings Ahaziah the son of of Ahab Sorry, "...began to reign over Israel in Samaria, the seventeenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and and reigned two years over Israel. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father, and in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. For he served Baal, and worshipped him, and provoked to anger the Lord God of Israel." according to all that his father had done first line of second kings and then moab rebelled against israel after the death of ahab <clears throat> so much of the old testament grapples with this perceived unfairness That the wicked seem to suffer. That in many cases, the wicked seem to prosper at the expense of the righteous. Ecclesiastes comments on this in a number of places. We go to chapter 4. And Solomon puts it this way, Wherefore I praised the dead, which are already dead, more than the living, which are yet alive. Better is it is he than both they, which hath not been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. I considered all travail and every right work that for this man is envied of his neighbor. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit, I think the challenge with Solomon sometimes is he's pretty honest, but he doesn't always give us the hope at least in the moment. That one thing that Solomon does in Ecclesiastes is this is not a collection of words of a prophet saying, thus saith the Lord. But these are the words almost of a philosopher saying, let's think about this. Let's, let's walk down a few of these roads together. My favorite verse in the Bible would have to be Ecclesiastes 7, 13. Consider the work of God. For who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? And it, one of the reasons that's my favorite verse is because it implies that there are times when God makes things crooked. And there are some... Other translations that put it as what he has bent. It's almost like he's made it crooked. and He's taken it out of shape and bent it crooked. <clears throat> but there are times when God makes things crooked. Enter Job. There are times when God makes things crooked. There are times where the tabernacles of robbers prosper... And they that provoke God are secure, into whose hand God bringeth abundantly. Romans 9 tells us that God categorizes people in two groups vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. The people to which God pours out his mercy, and the people to whom he pours out his wrath. And the language is very interesting that Paul uses because he describes God as. Enduring vessels of wrath. It's a beautiful picture of his patience. That God has endured the vessels of wrath. That the tabernacles of robbers prosper, and they that provoke God are secure. Into whose hand God bringeth abundantly, because God is patient. Verse 7, But ask now the beasts... And they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they will tell thee. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach thee. The fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee. Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord has wrought this? That the hand of the Lord has done these things? And so, if the animals testify of God's activity... Not unlike when Jesus said, consider the birds of the air. Job says that, says, consider the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, consider the sea, consider the earth. And all these things will tell you that the hand of, of God has enacted these things. That God created the world and God sustains the world. And he sustains a world where oftentimes the robbers plunder and prosper and the righteous suffer. And that is one of the things that we have to wrestle through as believers is that we are not promised to prosper to the extent that wicked people tend to do. We are not promised prosperity here. We are seated in heavenly places, it says in Ephesians. That we are co-heirs with Christ, it says in Romans. That our inheritance is undefiled, it says in Peter. But, that, but all of these things are in Christ. They're with Christ. Which means the prosperity, quote-unquote, the, the blessings are not just for here, but in the world that is to come, in the age that is to come, When Christ makes all things new. So much so that Paul says that the sufferings of our present day are not worth comparing with the glory that is yet to be revealed. And that is the hope when we look at what Job looks at and we see what Job sees. And we recognize that God is making things new, moment by moment, piece by piece, decision by decision. God is reconciling the world to himself. And in that, God has been pleased to endure the suffering, to endure the prosperity of the wicked, while telling us that vengeance is mine, I will repay. As it says in Exodus, that I am a jealous God who remembers wickedness to the third generation. That God does not forget. <clears throat> and the sins of the wicked do not, he doesn't miss those. Because in his hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Just as he has, count, he has counted the hairs on our head, and knit us together in our mother, mother's wombs. So God is actively involved in this world. That he upholds the world by the word of his power. But in the midst of that, we have very real problems. That we have the success of the wicked. We have the vessels of wrath. In verse 12, sorry, verse 11, does not the ear try words and the mouth taste his meat? We say, yeah, obviously. Following that parallel with an application, with the ancient is wisdom, and in length of days is understanding. With the ancient is wisdom. That works on two levels, because initially, on the surface, we have this picture that as people live under the sun, as people live in this fallen world, as people walk with God for an extended period of time, God makes them wise. But additionally, who is more ancient than God? None. None. With the ancient is wisdom. In the length of days there is understanding. And so <clears throat> despite the fact that there is suffering, despite the fact that the wicked prosper, the most ancient being of all is wisest of all. that God is the epitome of wisdom. By it He made the world, it tells us in Proverbs three. But God is wise beyond our capacity. And so as we look at the world and we see what Job sees and we feel what Job feels, there is a God whose wisdom surpasses all of that. There is a God who has not left us. We are not forsaken. It is by his mercy that we are not consumed by the tabernacles of robbers that the security of those that provoke God does not eliminate us. Because God is faithful to the righteous. It is by His mercy that we are not consumed. And so if God is sovereign, and yet bad things still happen, it's because there is because there is a purpose, that if the righteous suffer... While being his people, while being his possession, as it says in Deuteronomy, a people for his possession. If that is true, then when God decrees suffering in a world that he upholds by the word of his power, it is because that suffering is advantageous to his people. That there is something we gain from suffering, there is something we gain. From the wicked prospering, from being, from not pulling ahead, we gain something, and that is why Jesus said, "Blessed are the poor in spirit." Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. And there is a blessing that we find in God when we come to the end of a rope. When we get to the end of ourselves and realize just how insufficient we are, that we are not independent, we are not insuff- we are not self-sufficient, that at the end of the day, we need God. I was talking with a friend of mine, um, Elias Gonzalez, from the Reformed Berean podcast. <clears throat> he has started checking out liturgical prayers in church history, and we were talking a little bit about the Book of Common Prayer from English history, Anglican churches. And he got a copy of it from the 1600s and entirely preserved as it was written then. And he was quite surprised to find Prayers for Rain. And my copy of a more recent edition of the Book of Common Prayer does not. Because in the 1600s, the people that put together the Book of Common Prayer recognized that God shuts the sky, so there's no rain. It is the same God who brings the rain, who brings the drought. That it rains when God says it rains. And so they included prayers for rain, recognizing that all things proceed from God. All good things proceed from God. It may not feel good in the moment when we suffer, but at the end of the day, it is advantageous to the people of God if God would bring it into our lives. It's not just he allowed it, but God, in some real way, declared that this would take place. That there is something God knows we will gain by suffering, and so bring suffering into our lives. Just as he did with with Paul, with the other apostles, as he did with the Israelites. How many times did he bring calamity on Israel as he was refining them in the wilderness? He sent snakes. He sent plagues, he sent famines, and all the while they are his people. The same people that he says in Zephaniah are the apple of his eye. The same people that he says in Jeremiah, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, are the same people to which he brought calamity, he brought pain, he brought trials and difficulty And however we wrestle with the character of God, we can't negate that the God who blesses is the God who disciplines, that the God who brings rain is the God who brings drought, and the whole of who God is, is ours to experience. As his blood-bought people, as people redeemed by the blood of Christ, we are not in fellowship with an incomplete God with a God who is half-full, the God who is missing components. But we are in fellowship with God as he is. Which means we witness the God who disciplines, the God who chastens, the God who sometimes brings suffering on his people for their good, as well as the God who seats his people in heavenly places, who blesses them with every blessing in Christ, When that when we talk about that, God is more complicated than we give him credit for sometimes. Not in the sense that he's made of all these parts and has this complicated gear system, but that God the way he operates goes beyond our capacity to understand. And that is exactly the point of the book of Job. That with the ancient is wisdom, and in length of days understanding, while we are but a but a breath of wind on this on the savannah. God has always been. God is wiser than we will ever be. He has more understanding than we will ever have. So with the ancient is wisdom, and in the length of days understanding. With him is wisdom and strength. He hath counsel and understanding. Behold, he breaketh down, and it cannot be built again. He shutteth up a man, and there can be no opening. <clears throat> to quote Romans nine one, once again. Who are you, O oh man, that you should answer back to God? Does the potter does the clay say to the potter? Why have you made me this way? Is at the end of the day there is a difference between God and myself? Not just in personality, not just in what makes not not just DNA. But God is ontologically different than me. Which means when I look at what Job sees, when I feel what Job feels, when I seer, see, when I see, as Solomon does, the tears of the oppressed and that there is none to comfort them, when I see the wicked in a high and lofty place, God is beyond me. He is wiser than I. He is bigger than I. He has more understanding than I can ever hope to have. And it is in this God that my soul rests. It is to this God that I bring my triumphs and my confusion, that I bring my joy and my lament. my felicity and my depression. Because in His hands, He holds it all. So let us go to this God, who is more than we will ever be, who is wiser than we will ever be, who has more understanding than we ever will have, and is more patient and merciful than we can ever fathom. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, striving to let the Word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds, united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth in Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless, Matthew 4-4.